0: Let's go inside, under my skin, you come
1: around, the other way, a dream I have spent. Hello and welcome to another edition of Act in Context Podcast. I am your co-host, John DeLynn, here with the ever-wonderful and insightful Jennifer Plum. Hello, Jennifer.
2: Hey, John. How's it going? Good to be here. Good to be here. Good. Good.
1: It's time for another podcast. You ready?
2: You bet. I'm excited.
1: All right. Well good. Well um today it's a it's a it's a Reno intensive podcast because we have with us um Matthew Villot, or I'll call him Matthew, just uh for the sake of simplicity. And he's he's uh joining us from the University of Nevada at Reno along with Jen. Hi Matthew.
0: Hi, John,
1: hi Jen. Hello. <laughs> it's, it's good to have you here. Um yeah. Yeah, let me uh let me go ahead and introduce you and then we'll get right to sure. uh the topic. <clears throat> the the bio says that Mathieu Vallat, a PhD is a French psychologist who joined the University of Nevada at Reno in 2010 or last year after conducting a series of RFT or relational frame theory studies on perspective taking in the frame of his doctoral research. He now continues his research on ACT processes, such as values and mindfulness, in Stephen Hayes' lab and on the applications of RFT to clinical practice. Um, He also leads workshops and conducts conducts supervision in the United States, Canada, and in Europe, and is the co-author of the First ACT Manual for Professionals in French. How cool. Um... Finally, Mathieu is involved in the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, or ACBS, as a board member and as an associate editor of the journal Contextual Behavioral Science. So, Mathieu, welcome to Act in Context podcast again. Thank you, John. I'm very pleased to be uh, here with you and to talk
0: about this uh, very, very interesting subject.
1: Good. Well, great. Um, So uh, I'm dying to hear... Uh, how to say relational frame theory in French. So just tell us right now. How do well, you that's, a,
0: that's an excellent question. So <laughs> we actually call that la théorie des cadres relationnels. Okay, the theory
1: is, of something rational?
2: Relational. Yeah, it's
0: yeah. it's really very close, in fact, to the um, to the original term. But, you know, at some point, we just decided to translate it th- that way. It's actually uh, a colleague from uh, Switzerland who first translated some of these... Uh, uh, material, act, and RFT material on the, the ACBS website. We translated it that way and then we just uh, continue it with that term.
2: Nice. How about act? What is act in French? Ooh. Act
0: is acceptant. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I still think in English. Um, therapie d'acceptation et d'engagement. Which okay. is, yeah, very, very uh, similar to. And um, I have also some uh, some anguish, ambiguous way of interpreting some of these words like uh, commitment and uh, in French enge- uh, engagement can lead to some misunderstandings sometimes exactly
1: like mm-hmm. acceptance it's mm-hmm. yeah very very similar
0: mm.
2: very cool
1: well I just that was just more for fun but thank you for entertaining the fun yeah <laughs> so um, so today's topic is one that is for some one of the more sticky uh, mm. difficult topics. I, that's been my experience. Jen, is that, has that been yeah, your experience?
2: Yeah, I would actually, I might argue that it's one of the more neglected processes in the model. <laughs>
1: neglected uh, meaning it, 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 that it should get more attention?
2: Maybe, uh, not necessarily. Well, research attention for sure, but I think uh, therapists, unless they come from a strong maybe meditation background background, and have thought a lot about sort of an observer self perspective. I think a lot of folks don't really know what to do with the self, the self processes. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you're right, Jen and and John. It's um, a process that is often presented in workshops as being the process that is difficult to, to understand. And sometimes just left aside because of that, I think. Mm -hmm. And yet I also hear very often from clinicians that it's, the process that they found the most interesting in their model. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely something about it.
2: Yeah, it's definitely intriguing for sure. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So Matt, I have a question that John usually asks. I'm going to steal your question, John. Um, I'm curious as to a little bit of your background and how you came to psychology in France and what what sort of turned you on to ACT?
0: Yeah, that's... That's, a, that's an interesting question for me because I really feel uh, when I look back that there's so many coincidences that uh, I should not even be here, in fact, you know, <laughs> um, but I guess that's probably a, a bit true for, for everybody in the end. Mm-hmm. So in fact, what I did is that I started my studies in psychology in France in uh, 97 and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be in one of the very few places where behavior analysis was taught there. Ah. So yeah, so it has really influenced my way of thinking about psychology in general and uh, and therapy in particular it's uh that was a very very special influence to 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 be trained in this um
2: so you came to psychology from a perspective of behavior analysis right off the bat
0: yeah that's the thing in france you choose a major just after high school, so mm-hmm. in fact, you you are uh, you are taught many, many uh, different fields and theories in psychology, and, you know, psychoanalysis is still very dominant in France. And um, so I started learning about um behavior analysis from the, my very first year in college, my freshman year in college, and began very, very interested from the very, very beginning. Yeah, it definitely influenced the rest of my studies after. Cool. Yeah, and, uh, well, later, uh, when I began my, my PhD, uh, several years later, I was... You know, very much interested in a theory of mind. It's a a concept coming from cognitive psychology to to talk about how we can interpret social cues and attribute mental states, basically. And Mm. um, because of my behavior analytic background, I was interested in, you know... Approaching this concept from a, a different perspective, uh, so that's mm-hmm. how I came to to re- relational frame theory to, to RFT first. Uh, by doing my my own research on this topic, I, I was interested in knowing what uh, Fox uh, in Beaver and were doing on this uh, very uh, very typically cognitive uh, subject. And um, at that time, RFT researchers were, I think, just starting to publish uh, some first studies on this topic. You know. Uh, that was, I think it was in uh, 2004, probably, something yeah, like that. Louise yeah, Louise McHugh was one of the, f- one yeah, of the first studies yeah. that
2: came out on mm-hmm, theory mm-hmm. of mind stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: there was a, a chapter in the in the RFT book in 2001, but then mm-hmm. not much. And then, then these first studies uh, at that time. So don- nobody knew uh, much about RFT in France at that time. And uh, even among behavior analysts, actually. So I studied much by myself. And, uh Quickly after, with collaborations outside of France, uh, in particular with Louise Louis McHugh, as you said, in in UK. And uh, in the meantime, as I was doing my internship, I began interested in the applications of RFT in uh, in clinical practice. So I was I was being trained in CBT, but uh, because of my behavioral analytic background, again, and uh, actually my supervisor uh, at of that time, Jean-Louis Weimannestes, was exactly in the same uh, in the same perspective. You know, it was. Uh, trained as a behavior analyst, but trying to do psychotherapy with a bit of CBT, a bit of uh, behavior analysis, and uh, that's how we, through RFT, uh, we we came to to act. Um, and again, at that time, there was not much um, diffusion of the model in French. So uh, I studied first by myself, and and also with and with Jean Wimenesse as I said, uh, and uh, much later, actually this year we. We uh, wrote a, that actor manual in French, so things have changed quite a lot in the, in these past um, seven yeah. years. France, yeah. yeah, Since
2: 2004, a lot's been changing. Yeah. Yeah, it's been yeah. very
0: quick. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you know, so, so, what, uh, yeah, so go ahead. So
2: can I ask you? Um, you know, coming coming to act through RFT is kind of an interesting journey that a lot of folks haven't had. Mm. Um, what when you sort of saw what Act was? What was most exciting to you when you, when you learned about the
0: model? Well, I think it's very close to what I felt when I more recently learned about um, functional analytic psychotherapy. I, I really put these two models together for that. It's just that it seemed to open so many doors that were that I felt were closed forever before that. Huh. Um, you know, if you wanted to have the, the precision of behavior analysis, you uh, almost needed to uh, say goodbye to uh, psychotherapy, you know, to uh, talk Mm. therapy. Uh, So uh, suddenly the idea that we could literally uh, use language and talk with our clients and talk about subjects that were very uh, uh, profound, you know, uh, like values and the meaning of life. uh, Mm. And still with this um, precision of behavior analysis, just seemed like um, uh, everything was... Possible Again, we could really mm. uh, uh, talk about uh, so, many, so many topics and, uh, and help clients in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that, that was definitely the, um, the look I had on, the, on that model. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always wanted to, to understand the connection with the basic principles coming from, from RFT. So, mm-hmm. there was always this uh, little challenge too, but uh, I also think that's what made it very fun.
2: Very cool. Mm.
1: Very fun. Well… Jen, it sounds like we uh, sounds like uh, we've used our RFT guy for self as context, but my guess is that he's versatile. He's yes. like a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> yes. And there are there are other folks who, who uh can maybe take pieces of RFT. I have a feeling we're not gonna be able to get RFT into one podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well let's jump into selfish context then. Is that all right? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, so so far we've done an introduction to ACT. We've done sort of a history of, of psychology, as it as, as it led up to the creation of ACBS and ACT. Then we've done acceptance and we've done diffusion. Um. And so now we're at the point of talking about both self as context and mindfulness. I'm not sure whether mindfulness will air before this one, but. Um, so so assume that we've we, that our listeners have uh, have you know got a basic understanding of acceptance and diffusion mm-hmm. They know that with acceptance we're that that, um, that instead of trying to resist or fight or control mm-hmm. internal uh, you know thoughts feelings sensations memories instead of trying to control them or fight them or resist them we 're supposed to allow them to be there and kind of accept them. And, and we also know that we are not to view, um, you know, slavishly obey our thoughts and feelings, but instead we're supposed to recognize them as thoughts and as feelings and, um, and realize that our behavior can be separate from our thoughts and feelings. Um, where does self as context come in once we have that foundation laid? So why don't you give us just an overview of what self self as context means, and how it sort of extends um, from the foundation of acceptance and diffusion. Sure. Well,
0: I think uh, to understand the the principle of self as context, I think it's I found very useful to start with explaining what is the what we call the conceptualized self. So it will be one of these uh, few terms, a bit uh, jargony terms that I will uh, use with you. But I think that that one is very important. So. We have this distinction between self as context and conceptualized self. And to understand self as context, I think it's interesting to understand conceptualized self. So said simply, conceptualized self, it's a a verbal definition of ourselves. So that is everything I come up with to talk about myself um, is generally what we would call the conceptualized self. So for example, uh, I could say I am a man or I am 32 or I am French. Uh, you know, so all of that is, in fact, definitions. It's um, it's using using uh, language to talk about myself. So some of these definitions can be positive. For example, uh, I could say I am self-confident or negative. Uh, I am weak. Um, it's very useful to rely on these definitions, you know, to communicate with others. Uh, for example. When we meet a person for the first time, um, we can learn a lot about them through these verbal definitions, you know. Um, So they can tell us about their story, uh, what they do in their life, uh, to what group they belong, etc. And what's interesting is that it allows us to quickly understand each other, you know, to categorize, to, to predict and explain actions of others. But here's the thing. It might become a problem... Um, when um, this verbal definition uh, overshadows other definitions or even non-verbal aspects of ourselves, so let's say uh, let's take an example. Uh, let's say I define myself as uh, socially anxious, for example. So each time I'm going to have to meet somebody for the first time, uh, I might think uh, I'm anxious when I meet new people. It's going to be an awful experience. I would rather avoid that. So even if the experience is positive in the end, um, there is a good chance that I will be insensitive to these positive events, that I won't see the good things that happen in this situation just because uh, they are not consistent with the definition of myself, uh, what we would call, in fact, the conceptualized self. So in fact, this effect is the same as what we observe in fusion in general. You were asking about this connection with other processes. Right. And I really think that we can see uh, fusion with conceptualized self as almost a, a byproduct of the, of the process of fusion. But I will see um, after um, the processes that we try to target to get to self as context is a little bit different than what we would do only with, uh, with fusion.
2: Mm. Yeah, and actually, our listeners heard a little bit about fusion with um, conceptualized self categories when we had our podcast with uh, Russ yeah. Harris on Diffusion, so they heard a little bit about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you will see, you will definitely see uh, overlaps with these two uh, two processes. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to uh, to note also, you know, is that um, this problematic effect of fusion with conceptualized self uh, can also appear with positive definition of the self. So imagine I think of myself, uh, for example, as a very self-confident, let's say. Um, So if I have the opportunity to put myself in a new and challenging situation, uh, I don't know, uh, for example, let's say taking classes of salsa with my wife, for example. And if I experience some embarrassment at first because I don't dance very well, you know, or I'm a little bit clumsy, well, I might actually run away from this situation because it <laughs> threatens my conceptualized self, you know. It can literally threaten my identity. So that's, mm. I think, it's something important to, to remember. This definition of ourselves, we're not going to necessarily only target what seems to be negative. What we're going to target is uh, a certain rigidity in the way we, uh, we uh, believe in these definitions.
1: Mm. So, so, so if, so if uh, I hear your understanding... If I if i understand you correctly, you're saying, and I think Russ talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. there's danger in becoming too attached to both negative and positive conceptualizations or labels or roles that we place on ourselves. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's exactly that. The, the problem is that if, uh, if you believe rigidly in, the, in this definition of yourself, well, it might become a barrier to act... Uh, in the direction of what really matters to you. And as I said, it can be something that feels like negative, um, like uh, I'm not good enough, I'm not performing enough, I'm not self-confident, so I won't be able to for example go to this uh, interview or something like that. But something that seems positive uh, can also prevent you from uh, doing new uh, new actions, something that could bring you some satisfaction. Mm-hmm. If you don't want if you don't want to put yourself in a situation when this positive definition of yourself it's going to be a little bit uh, uh, threatened, then you might avoid these kind of situations. And and in fact, you might suffer from that. Mm -hmm.
1: So it can cause avoidance uh, trying to maintain these positive conceptions. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's really about trying to maintain this uh, consistency, this coherence in the way you you think about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm -hmm. Also seems like it sets you up for disappointment. If you think you're fabulous and you think you're amazing – or if you you know if your conception of yourself is i'm a phd or mm-hmm. i'm a dentist or i'm a father if something changes about that status absolutely then yeah. all of a sudden you you were you were dependent on something psychologically that that can evaporate
0: yeah it it's that's definitely true and you know sometimes something that might appear as good uh happens in your life but um there's also <laughs> Everything that comes with it that can be very uh, uh scary, like for example you you get a new job uh, or you uh you become a, a parent and then you have all these responsibilities that come with and uh, and that can be uh, that can be really quite disturbing you mm-hmm. know especially if you're very much attached to um these definition as if you have a, a specific way of defining uh these these roles and that you th- and that you are, are, are fused with it then then that might be uh pretty uh, pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. So So, what is self as context? Uh, I, I talked about concept USF, but um, on the other side, we have um, self as context. Uh, well, I think we could say in simple terms that uh, it 's a way of thinking uh, of uh, myself that is not fused. Um, I, you know I can still use the verbal definitions of myself, but with a certain distance, with flexibility, um, so the idea of context. The self as context comes from the principle that the thoughts that I have about myself, this, uh, all these definitions, um, are in fact just passing events. You know that appear like uh, we we use often this metaphor of clouds in the sky or like a movie on a television screen, and uh, those thoughts are not me. Uh, I am
1: I am the context of these thoughts. In fact, gotcha. So we're the place. Where thoughts and feelings happen, and then there's yeah. some, in, in, instead of you know instead of the thoughts and feelings themselves.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it's really this idea of uh, almost being like a, a theater and uh, being able to observe what's happening. Uh, you are uh, you are concerned about it, but you are not threatened by what's happening because no matter what uh, we will be on stage to keep the metaphor, uh, well, the theater will uh, will uh, remain the same, you know? Mm. So you allow, you allow uh, many, many different things to happen in yourself. That way you can have difficult emotions, you can have different thoughts about yourself, you can experience new, uh, you can engage in new experiences, like as I said, uh, maybe taking classes in salsa just because you want to be with your wife. And even if it brings difficult emotions, well, you know that... Uh, it doesn't threaten you deeply, you know?
2: Mm. So, so what another way of saying this, Matt, be, um, you know, for taking the metaphor of the theater and, Mm -hmm. and the sort of self as context is the, uh, the sort of, we are the sort of theater in which uh, the the movie screen plays out, whatever it'll play out in terms of our experiences. So I think the way John and I talked about it in the first podcast was the idea of this observer self, this idea of the self as a, Perspective of of being able to observe things happening rather than yeah. having them define define us is that yeah. is that a good way of talking about it? You think?
0: Yeah, it's exactly that. I think if we keep that metaphor, it would be uh, changing a perspective from uh, being on stage you know and being uh, totally in um, the psychological events. I mean, by that thoughts Ah, like a player almost yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and and if you change your perspective if you if you take a seat you know and you observe what 's happening, then uh s- suddenly you don't have the same level of uh, of uh, involvement in what 's mm-hmm. happening, not that you're not concerned at all i don't th- I think that would be a. A, a misconception of it to think that surface context is about not caring anymore about what's happening in your life is mm. really to have a different uh, perspective on it. That's that's mm. really the, the correct way of thinking. Mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Would this be a good time to talk about some other misconceptions or did you want to say a little bit more? Oh, I can, we, we can talk about that because I think it's also a way of understanding the, the concept be- better through, mm. through some of these misconceptions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I think um, one of Probably one of the typical misunderstandings about self-as-context is um, that the idea that self-as-context is good and conceptualized self is bad or wrong or false. Mm. Right. And uh, yeah, it's very often uh, something that we start to think when we go through this uh, this act model and as we we read more. But in fact, you know, problems with the conceptualized self come only if I am fused with it. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no problem with saying, for example, uh, I am a man. Uh, but if I have certain representations of what a man should be, for example, that a man has to be strong or uh, self-confident, etc. Mm. And uh, if I believe rigidly, again, in this definition, um, well, again, I might suffer when, when I am in a situation that challenges these characteristics and uh in fact i will as i said you know probably avoid these situations to to preserve my identity or what i think is uh, is my profound identity so it's not it's not a question of uh, saying that um, that conceptual self is, is false. It's a, it's a, it's a fake uh, representation of my identity. Uh, it's just that uh, when you become rigid with it, that, that you might have um, that you, that problems might might, might come. Mm-hmm. So yeah. rigid
2: or attached
0: to it, exactly, like overly yeah. attached to it, mm-hmm. yeah, and try absolutely. to protect it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would say probably another difficulty is maybe um, linked to the the very special, you know, special experience that contacting self as context uh, represents. You will often hear about it as a as a fleeting experience, very difficult to describe, or maybe almost comparable to a kind of um, depersonalization experience, you know. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's not absolutely necessary to have such experience. At least, I think not all the time. Um, what is the most fundamental, I believe, is to, to increase uh, that flexibility vis-à-vis vis- 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 conceptualize self. and uh, another uh, misconception quite quite um, common is that um, well it's quite difficult you know to understand that um, we're not talking about a thing or a place because you know John you, you use that um, that metaphor and it's, it's a very common metaphor that we use in, in act books and, and workshops uh, and even with, with our clients but in fact um, even if these metaphors um, uh, refer to a place uh, like in the the chessboard metaphor and the theater metaphor, um, well, uh, in fact, um, there's not really a, such a thing. You know, uh, it's not. There's not really a, a place that is the self as context. Uh, it's in fact a behavior, uh, a specific behavior. It's a it's what we call a perspective taking on the self, like like Jen was saying earlier too. Um, in, in a few words, yeah, that's the, this ability of observing myself from another point of view. But there is no nothing to, to reach, nothing that, that that you could that you could touch. But the metaphor can be useful for for understanding the that concept.
2: So, so in other words the metaphor can be useful to give people the stance that you're looking for like the stances you could what if you could sit in the seats as opposed to be on the stage acting exactly. things out but yeah. there's no real place it's not like a thing to achieve or a place that happens it's exactly. it's, it's a, yeah. so so tell me a little more about what you mean by it's a behavior i think a lot of our listeners may not be behaviorists um, yeah. mm-hmm. or behavior analysts who, who you know what what do you when you say behavior i think most people think you know, running, Something, walking, yeah. talking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so when you say it's a behavior, can you talk a little bit more about what that means?
0: Well, in fact, in a in a very broad um, definition of behavior, we would say basically it's any uh, thing I can I can do, uh, any activity I can I can have, and uh, that means that it can be either, as you said, just walking or eating or. Uh, or uh, uploading or something like that, but also anything that happens in my, in my mind, you know, thinking or, or talking or uh, counting, uh, uh, all these activities, um, we consider that also as, uh, as behavior. So that means that when I observe uh, uh, my thoughts, when I observe uh, what I think about myself, you know, that when I observe uh, my conceptualized self, my definition of myself, I'm actually uh, doing something Concretely, I'm observing what's happening exactly like I am sitting in the, in the theater, observing what's happening on stage. But um, the thing is, because I can also observe myself sitting in uh, uh, on that seat, uh, it, it, there's never an end to that. And um, the conclusion to that is that, in fact, there's nothing really to reach. The only thing that you can reach is an activity. So that's, that's something that is a little bit uh, uh, difficult to, uh, to understand, I guess, um, conceptually. But it's very uh, powerful um, uh, clinically because if you get to that sense, um, then you realize that there's uh, a nothing. And if there's nothing, then there's nothing uh, that can be really threatened. Whereas if you are fused with conceptualized self, then you think there is a really a thing that could be threatened that could be destroyed.
2: Mm. Interesting. So now we're on to like the no thing idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. mm-hmm. <laughs> huh, interesting. So the self is not a thing.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 it's an activity, in fact, at that level like this, because again, um, I'm not saying that um, this concept of self doesn't exist. It's just uh, a form of the self. It's just an aspect of the self. Mm. But that place, if we want to keep that metaphor of self as context, is is precisely what helps you uh, being detached from this, uh, from this definition, because there's not such a thing. Mm. It's kind of a, uh, a little bit tricky, and it requires actually uh, some practice uh, you know to uh, uh to uh, to get to that to that um, to that feeling to, to get to that sense to, to sort to of have that tricks.
2: experience mm-hmm. exactly
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah that 's pretty much the the, the main um, misunderstandings i would say uh, uh about self as context yeah and that makes it sometimes a little bit difficult too
1: so to... i hope i 'm not tell me if i 'm repeating uh something you 've already answered. And Jen, you too, just jump right in. But if we're not our thoughts and our feelings, my first question is, what are we? I I hear you say that we're a process of observing, but I worry that that wouldn't appeal to a lot of people. A lot of people, especially people who come from kind of a religious or spiritual Mm -hmm. tradition, see themselves as a soul or as a spirit. They believe that they have this transcendent, even maybe a metaphysical identity Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they want to feel like they are something, not just sort of a, an observing thing. And so, yeah, talk, talk about like how we reconcile the spiritual uh, and religious for those who are, are that and, and how we make this more meaningful in terms of people feeling like they have an identity and something that is theirs that's, that's meaningful
0: well that's a that's a very interesting question um i guess first I would like to to a little bit that i wouldn't say that there is no self or there is no um uh, identity um I think the conceptualized of self is something that is valid it's useful and uh it's um totally fine to uh believe uh what's inside the concept of self, what to believe in the definitions of yourself again what's problematic if you, if, you are, um, if you believe rigidly in this, uh, in this definition. And what I mean by rigidly is that at some point it takes you away from uh, things that can matter in your life, something that can bring satisfaction in your life. So um, if, let's say, if you believe that you have a soul uh, and if you are um, very religious and in your uh, system of beliefs, then there's a, a place for, uh, for a specific kind of self. Um, well i don't think it's incompatible with this vision of act um depending on the on the philosophy um that you um that you uh, believe in or the religion that you believe in uh, maybe you will put this sense of um self in different places but um i think in the end uh, the question of being uh, flexible with these beliefs will still be uh, um what is the most important i think uh, so to maybe to answer a little bit more your question if we take the this act stance and we say, so if we are not our thoughts, if we are not our beliefs, and when uh when uh what are we? Uh well I uh we, we might talk a little bit more about that um after, but um I think um one thing that defines ourselves is uh probably what matters to us, values, you know. And uh that is also a part of uh our Verbal activity, Uh, if I, for example, I say um, I am a very compassionate person uh, and uh, I want to help people who suffer, well, that's a definition of myself and um, it's uh, rooted in a value. So there's nothing wrong about that. I guess it's actually uh, even very very useful, you know?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Jen, what would you add?
2: I think the only thing I would add is that – and maybe Matt will talk about this a little bit when we get to talking about how to do this clinically. Um, that when you talk to people who who practice uh, this sort of perspective taking on one's own experience, watching thoughts, seeing ourselves as more than just our experiences, I think Matt maybe have this has this happened for you and your clients? Like it can be actually a quite transcendent experience. To to sort it's it can be empowering and transcendent as opposed to scary or threatening i mean sometimes folks can find that scary because it's like well if i'm not my thoughts or whatever who am i you know there's some verbal mm-hmm. things about the way we talk as a culture that can make that scary but i think the experience of it's actually quite spiritual for some folks
0: or can yeah be. that's true i think it might actually be true for um other processes of act i mean in terms of acceptance for example the the first move with acceptance uh, is um first feeling that comes with acceptance is often a, a feeling of, of relief, you know, and um, that can be a little uh, scary at the same time. That's true. But um, I think most of the time clients, what they experience is that um, doors are open, you know, mm, right. Uh, like it's,
2: it's a, it's a, step towards something
0: it, it's exactly more, exactly exactly yeah. and and exactly like as acceptance wouldn't mean anything if it doesn't help you move in the direction that 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 you choose um reaching a transcendent sense of self without having any values without having any directions uh to move toward you know uh, wouldn't make sense either mm-hmm. you know you, you would be maybe in a, this kind of uh Place of just contemplation, maybe forever, without having any uh, any purpose uh, in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's why the connection with other processes of uh, in act are so important.
2: Mm-hmm. So so just to kind of wrap that up, it feel it seems like practicing taking the stance on our experiences that we can observe them, watch them. We're not direct. We're not dictated by them. We're not. The same as them, sort of like loosening the chains of of those experiences that may have held us down before. Yeah, it's like a freeing experience. It can be exactly freeing you to move towards the
0: things you care about. Exactly, you decrease really the the control that this verbal definition, this uh, this uh, identity, um, can have on uh, on yourself. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's still there, but you are not as attached to it
1: mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: So. You- so you can still choose to to act according to this definition. For example, if you think uh, um, I am a person who doesn't like going to parties, for example, well, you might choose that. Yeah, indeed, that's not something that you uh, that you enjoy very much. But if you have this uh, distance uh, stance. Uh, this distance uh, perspective, then you you will see that you're making this choice uh, according to values, and not just because you 're afraid of uh, any threats to uh, to the definition of yourself mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. the, the difference
2: mm-hmm. does that does that answer your question John
1: yeah I think to, to I, a point. I think so yeah yeah <laughs> I'm, I, it 'd be fun to kind of now start talking about how we how we talk to clients about this, how we introduce the topic and how we take them through some exercises, some experiential exercises or what metaphors we convey. Um, and how, and then kind of talk about how these experiences and metaphors, uh, start taking root for the clients to, uh, to help them move in a, in a healthy way psychologically.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So as we said earlier, it's um, it's true that it's a process that might not be uh, uh, easy to uh, to master at first. There's a a lot of uh, different um, uh, exercises, of course, but there's different uh, different approaches to that. I think for to develop self-ass contact uh, in uh, in session, it's like for uh, other processes of of act. Uh, you know, we can use formal exercises or more informal techniques uh, that use the therapeutic relationship, for example. Uh, so typical formal exercises are often conducted uh, eyes closed, you know, with instructions similar to, to what we use in mindfulness. So for example, in the, the observer exercise, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, the client is led to observe their thoughts, feelings, sensations, and and then to observe that they are observing with questions such as, who's observing these thoughts now, you know, and we can continue this exercise by asking who's observing that you're observing that you're observing. You know, there's uh, almost uh, uh, no end, you know, it's a, uh, it's uh, potentially uh, infinite, but, but, but we don't do that for, for hours. Of course, what we try to do is, is to help the client perceive that if you can adopt this uh, infinite perspective, then there's nothing as we were saying that remains or said another way, not a thing, but only a, a, an action observing from, from this perspective, uh, that will always be uh, that will always be be there. So, if you perceive that, if you perceive that there's nothing to 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 touch, in fact, that is just a, um, a perspective on what's happening in your in yourself. Well, you might be able to to get that what you think about yourself doesn't summarize you, and you might gain flexibility in your in your actions. And uh, you know, there are many other formal exercises, you know, uh, exercises that target more uh, a sense of continuity of, of the self in, in which we might have our clients uh, remember uh, past episodes of their life, you know, when, for example, they were kids or, and then the adolescent or then last summer. And all along this exercise, we, we try to lead them to uh, get to that sense that all along this episode, they were, they were there, you know, all along. There was, it was them all along, even if they have changed, even if maybe they, they got older, they had different uh, thoughts, they, a a lot of different um events happen in their life, but all along they were still there, so that really helps uh building this sense of of continuity uh, of the self It's mm-hmm. also um possible to use metaphors uh, i I mentioned some, but you know like for other processes of act it's um it's very useful to to use a metaphor really as a, a true uh, experiential exercise for example the the way we could do that uh, if we really want to use the metaphor in a experiential way um, I could say to a client something like let's imagine that the the battle you are engaged uh, uh, you are engaging in with your with your thoughts uh, is like a, a chase game um, let's imagine that the thoughts that bother you are maybe the white pieces. Where are you in this game right now? So if I were to ask you that, for example, Jen, maybe you could... Um,
2: yeah. You might um, wonder
0: where you are in this battle, if, if, if the struggle that you have with your, with your thoughts and your emotions is like, a, is like a chess game. What would you say to that?
2: Probably say maybe I'm the, the other pieces on the other side.
0: Yeah, probably. Or, I guess yeah. if you if you identify them, the white pieces as the, um, as your difficult thoughts, that makes sense. That probably you would like to to get rid of that. So, where are you exactly? You you would say you are on the on the chessboard, maybe?
2: Yeah, maybe I'm the uh, maybe I'm the queen.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And what do you try to do exactly? Are you trying to to get rid of the pieces that are? Uh side? yeah,
2: I guess the 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 object of chess is to to get rid of as many of your opponent's mm-hmm. pieces as you can. So yeah. take yeah. over their spots and yeah. stand there instead.
0: And uh, how does it feel? Do you feel like um you're winning the battle? You're you're losing, or is it kind of even fight? How is it how is it looking like exactly for you?
2: You mean like in my life? Um probably probably about 50 50 like i might gain some ground mm-hmm. but then they gain some ground back
0: so you mean that sometimes you uh you can get rid of some pieces but then sometimes you you lose some pieces too yeah Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah you almost feel like it's a it's a a game that never really ends like these uh games between you know uh, two chess masters that uh that lasts for days and days Or years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably say years. Yeah. 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 And uh, it looks like for 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 what you're telling me that the, the what's going to happen, who's going to win the battle really matters to you, right? If you chose a, a side, I can imagine that it really matters to you.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want the thoughts that like I suck to win.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this, this is the... A high risk that you can, that you might lose the battle.
2: I never really thought about that, but yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I certainly don't want the other side to win. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if uh, there would be a a place, a, a position, when you uh, where you could be, where you could still uh, kind of be a part of the game, but where the um, where the the winner of the battle wouldn't matter as much.
2: What if I was the player, like the person who actually moved the pieces? Maybe I'd have more control.
0: Maybe I wonder if uh, I wonder if uh, it's not what you what you're doing right now. What do you think? I feel like uh, you've chosen a, a side, right?
2: That's true. I guess if I was the player, I only have control over my one side.
0: Mm-hmm. You almost feel like sometimes you are on the chessboard, really, uh, with your thoughts when they are very, very close to you, and sometimes you're maybe a little uh, farther away, like when we're talking about it right now, like you can see it with a bit more distance, but I still feel like you, that you have chosen a, a side.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess I have. I don't like the other pieces for yeah. sure.
0: I wonder what, what stays at, at the end of a party. So when you, you win or you lose the game, but at the end of the party, what there's something that hasn't changed at all during the party that no matter what happened, if you, uh, Lost very quickly or after a long battle. That's a part of the of that game that hasn't changed at all. Hmm. What do you think that can be? I don't I don't really know. You know, there's this battle happens on a on the chessboard. You know, we sometimes even forget it because it's it's always there and doesn't change, so because nothing's happening and we almost must forget that all this battle is happening on the chessboard. But what's really cool about the chessboard is that no matter what happens, well, we'll always be there. The chessboard will always be there. And in a way, it's uh, in a great position for observing the battle, what do you think?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess you'd be able to see see everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, and do you think that the chessboard has a side in this battle?
2: Well, if you said that the white pieces are the thoughts I don't like it's got both white and black or different color squares.
0: That's true. Squares. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: I guess yeah. not.
0: Yeah. I wonder, what would be the, the advantage of being a chessboard with your thoughts?
2: Uh, I guess I wouldn't have to deal with the battle, maybe.
0: And would that be a, a problem? Not to be part of the battle, but just to, to be uh, the place where the battle is happening?
1: Hmm.
2: It's a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, because like, there, it says those pieces say things I don't like. They're yeah. To just, just not get involved because they say some pretty mean things.
0: It's kind of difficult uh, to to think that you might just let them talk and not be really part of the battle. Yeah. 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 And at the same time, it feels like it's a it's kind of a safe place where. Whatever can happen in the battle, you know that nothing can happen to you because you're just a chessboard. That's true. And I'm want to say you're just a chessboard, but you may be also what's the most important because without the chessboard, there's no power there's no game that can happen either. Mm. Yeah. So you see, Jen, it's um, this kind of uh, exchange. Of course, you adapt according to what's happening with the the client. The, Particular thoughts that they have, but what we really try to do is to conduct that um, through an experiential exercise, not just to illustrate what we try to what we try to say, and um, that can take really uh, some time, you know. Why not sometime about half an hour, and uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and you can be more specific about what the client is is, uh, is struggling with, but um, the idea is that um, the client can come up with. Uh, their own conclusions, and sometimes you know the specific metaphor maybe won't be the the best, but you might come up with another one, and sometimes actually even the client might find another one that will fit even better. Yeah, yeah. Time too. So yeah, that's another that's another approach to um, to develop the um, surface context um, process. Is those are I would say are pretty uh, pretty formal exercises, but you have also. Uh, a lot of other approaches to to develop surface context, and you might want to use, for example, uh, the exchanges with the uh, with the clients, and in particular to enhance flexibility in perspective taking. You know, we've we've talked about how perspective taking is is very much involved in this process, and uh, there's always um, opportunities for practicing perspective taking. Um, for example, when the client seems fused with. Uh, a definition of themselves um, may be useful to ask them to remember themselves, for example, a couple of months ago, or what they would think about this uh, about this definition if if something special happened in their life, so concretely, you know the, the therapist could ask uh, uh, things like um, and if you were your husband, what would you think about these thoughts that you're having right now or uh, if you were me, how would you feel uh, uh, as you listen to this story that you're telling uh, telling now. So what's important to say, you know, is that um, we're not trying to change the way clients think about themselves. That I think is very important to, to remember. The point is not to say, uh, you see others have different opinion about you, so you are probably wrong, but rather... <laughs> right, it's not it's,
2: disputing, right? It's not saying, exactly, like, exactly. It's, it's wrong, it's irrational.
0: Exactly. Right. The idea is not to say uh, you see other people thinking in other ways, so you should consider more your, the way of thinking. No, that would be rather that uh, the message, I guess, that would be more um, for a given event, object or person, that, you know, there are an infinity of ways of thinking about it. So it's possible that you are, uh, let's say, stupid, weak, et cetera, but maybe you're also interesting, strong, funny, et cetera. And all these definitions, you know, in the end are, they are fleeting, they are... Uh, highly depending on, on various contexts. So yes, the, the use of perspective taking in, uh, in session is is really useful. And I, I, think it's a, I think it's also a great way of helping clients who, who don't have a, a stable sense of self, you know, in, like in certain uh, clinical disorders such as uh, borderline personality disorders, for example, you know. So yeah, that's pretty much these uh, different uh, uh, techniques that we can use in, um, in ACT to develop self-ass context. Some are more formals and, uh, formal and others are, are a bit less formal and requires uh, maybe a, a bit more flexibility but it's also uh, uh, very interesting for, for the clinician to use these processes.
2: So it sounds um, a little bit like one of the key features about some of those informal exercises may be um, giving clients a lot of opportunities to experience a different different senses of self or different um different ways of viewing the self is that that yeah
0: that's accurate yeah you know we use this uh this technical term in uh, in behavior analysis it's um this idea of multiple exemplar training it's this idea of practicing again and again, but with different contexts. With different, um, uh, the specifics might change, but the principle remains the same. So, you might you might um, uh, encourage your client to practice perspective taking across different kinds of um, situations. That's 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 correct. That's really the the idea to practice again and again. And what is what is um, very flexible is that you don't necessarily have to say, okay, today we're gonna. Practice perspective taking, you know. You, you, in fact, it's more um, in the course of a, of an exchange that you might uh, that you might just bring that up at some point. You know, a client might say, "I'm really such a failure," and you would say, um, hmm. um, I uh, I remember you said uh, you talked about yourself uh, another way last week. Do you remember how you were talking about it?" And uh, yeah, I was more confident at that time. Okay, so if at that moment I had say, "You're such a failure," uh, what would have been your reaction at that point? You know, you just try to to build a bit of flexibility and to say that these um, definitions of yourself are are really changing constantly. Mm. Yeah, you know? So to
2: highlight sort of the process of yeah. how fleeting those things can be, but that they happen all the time. Um, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So John, I'm curious your experience, uh, because you, you've mentioned in some of our earlier podcasts about Um, you're, you're fairly new to the work, you know, you're, you're early in your training. What's coming up for you listening to this, this, this process that some have called the more difficult to understand process.
1: I'll be, I'll be honest. The first thing that comes to my mind are my own, um, the, the own the voices in my own head. Um, there, there's a voice in my head that says, wow, this sounds a little bit um sophisticated or this sounds a little bit uh, out there or a little bit new agey um so there's a I have to kind of because I've got a little bit of a skeptical mind because um uh because I'm always conscious that I I want to come across credibly to my clients one of the mm. things that I have to battle is is that but simultaneously this um my experience is that when I've dealt with religious people, which has been the majority of the people that I've worked with, of course, um, working in Logan, Utah, which is a very conservative county in a very conservative state in the United States, uh, the religious people just get this automatically. It's like, oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. my, sp-, you know, in in yeah. Mor- in Mormon yeah. terms, in LDS terms, it's just like, oh yeah, that's my spirit, you know, that's good, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. it actually, I've had very little resistance and very fast uptake to it. Um, if I were trying to explain this to somebody who was kind of cynical or skeptical or non-religious and sort of viewed viewed the world in a non in sort of in sort of a purely materialistic sense and in a non metaphysical sense, I, get, I I wonder whether I'd have a bit more of a challenge. But I don't know.
0: Well, it's a, it's a very interesting point, um, John. I think. Um one important aspect in what you say is when you say, I would have a hard time explaining, and I think that's uh, very important in, the, in particular for selfless context, but probably for other processes in ACT, is that if you find yourself uh, explaining uh, such a process, there's a good chance that it's not going to work very well indeed. It's, um, you know, right. if you study it from a theoretical point of view, or if you conduct research to understand how surface contact works, that's a thing. But when you use this process with your clients, starting talking about it, and I think actually that's probably one of the processes that suffer the most from that. And I would say probably with diffusion too, that is very much rooted in, in theory, but can lead to too many words, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and you know, I'm really uh, very, very attached to knowing the, the theory. I think it's... Extremely important to to understand the theory behind these these techniques, but I almost want to say that the most you know this theory, and um, the less you should talk uh, in in practice. <laughs> that means that, exactly, that mean, that's what should bring you some uh, some flexibility and um, reactivity and disability to to take anything that that comes. And as you said, you know, so if you talk to maybe a, a person who is uh, um, religious in uh, christianity or and then maybe to uh, buddhism then you might want to use different metaphors or you might want to use what they bring to you and think okay that's exactly what i'm talking about when i when i'm talking about self as context you know you just use what they give you and i think that's when you understand the theory behind that you can do that very well with a lot of flexibility so to answer your question again i think uh, yeah it's a it's a complex um process that can uh, lead to some misunderstandings even between uh, between scholars uh, you know there's some uh, very interesting papers uh, about this uh, about this topic and uh sometimes i've been uh, misunderstood but i think they were actually precisely uh, attempting to to make sense of this uh, feeling of transcendence from a from a materialistic point of view that's that was the point you know of this uh, this paper by Steve Hayes in eighty four, mm-hmm. making sense of spirituality. That's actually exactly the, the the point of it: is to try to say, okay, people experience something that seems to be very very special. This uh, sense of having a a soul, for example, and uh, how can we make sense of that from a, from a materialistic point of view? Not that we have to necessarily validate that there is a soul, but how come do we have that feeling or how Mm -hmm. come so many people have that feeling? And I think that's very interesting.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, and it also sounds like you're saying too, Matt, that, um, you know, there's a place for science and there's a place for theory and research. And I know, you know, in quite, quite good detail, a lot of the research that's been going on in these processes in particular, perspective taking and RFT. Um, But it sounds like you're saying there's a place for that and then the clinical room may not be the place for that. Like there's a place for, maybe the clinical room is more the place for allowing the experience to unfold as opposed to a place to figure out or really try Mm. to talk about in any kind of eloquent way, but more just to allow, to help the client practice the experience.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, the difficulty, you know, ACT is uh, in the tradition of CBT and uh, in this tradition we, we share our knowledge with our clients, there's uh, uh, no uh, question about it. We 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 are not the people who know as clinician, and uh, the therapy then the client has to just believe us. Um, so I, I don't see any problem with sharing uh, knowledge, but um, the problem is that sometimes it's not just not functional. Uh, if I start to do uh, to conduct a kind of a short class on the act processes, there is a good chance that I'm just gonna. Talk more and more, and as you probably uh, uh, heard it in the 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 previous uh, podcast, maybe on on fusion, for example, um, the problem is that if you start using too much language, in the end, you get also this um, uh, negative effects of language uh, being starting to be uh, insensitive to what's really happening in your um, in your life, and you uh, exactly like I would I would follow only the definitions of myself, you know, when I'm fused Mm -hmm. with conceptualized self. Um, If I start talking about the ACT model and I say, you know, we know that it can be really useful and we have uh, scientific studies that support this technique. Well, what's going to happen is that you might have clients who will do the technique, but they will do it just because uh, it's in the model and they've heard that it will be helpful. And they might um, not find it that useful. But the problem is that because they follow the model, they will not even uh, realize that. So I guess that's the rationale for that, and I'm really not saying that um, clinicians uh, shouldn't bother about about science or about the theory that is behind. But the way to use the theory is uh, very different from uh, from writing a book or or connecting a class.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's. I need to remember that. I I tend to get really talky. Still, I tend to be quite didactic. And I, I tend to try and explain concepts. And it doesn't, it doesn't work very well sometimes. It's – you know,
0: you see sometimes what happens when, you, when you're in that place with clients. You see um, clients will be able to, to tell you about the act processes very well, but on the, the measures of these processes – they won't move at all. Like for example, the measures of acceptance with um, that scale, the AAQ, for example, or the values scales. You see that they don't move, but they know perfectly well that yes, uh, I should accept my emotions. I should should detach myself <laughs> from the conceptualized self, etc., cetera, etc. They can speak
2: a good act <laughs> language. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah. They don't move. Exactly. They don't move. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But yeah, that's that's often. Um, that 's often what happens when we start practicing act, and I think that's that's fine. I think what happens is that with practice you um, you just see what is common in these uh, specific techniques and you just start talking a bit less and mm-hmm. and you see and you use what's happening in in session mm-hmm. That's what I think makes uh, act very very uh, special
2: mm-hmm. gotcha. so what are what are some other ways that um, that therapists can can help clients practice this process i mean it sounds sounds tricky it sounds easy to slip into lots of words and explaining yeah um so what are some strategies you would suggest
0: well you mean outside of session
2: um or maybe even in session
0: Uh, yeah well in session i would um I, i i would recommend this um formal exercises and, uh, and the use of, of, of uh, multiple exemplar training, as I said, in perspective taking.
2: What ways would you do th- those multiple exemplars? Like what, what kinds of different, like over what, like you mentioned before, situation, like across situations, are there other, other mm-hmm. ways folks can contact this sort of sense of continuity of self Yeah, besides um, just situation?
0: Yeah. Um, well, it's, um. It's a little bit tricky because um it's not exactly like you would plan um uh, an action for example so for example, if you have a client who um uh, has identified a value that something that really matters to them and plan to um commit to that action for the next week you know that they're going to practice something very concrete and then they can see what happens when it gets on their way. And um, so it's something that they can really do as a, as a homework. For surface contexts, the thing is that it's kind of... Um Always there. So um, what we try to develop is this um, ability to um, notice when fusion with conceptualized self comes. So there's different kinds of exercises that that we can do, and you know, um, some of these exercises can be um, um, done in session, but then practice a little bit outside. Mm. And um, I'm thinking of a, a very typical exercise in act that I think it's easy and very relevant to the to to practicing self as context. Um, Basically, it consists of using a, a a tag on which you you write um, um, a definition of yourself. Something generally that you don't like about yourself. So that could be something like um, um, anxious or nervous or um, incompetent. Mm-hmm. And um, and just to practice this um, distance from this um, definition, you'll put this tag on your on your shirt, you know, and um, and just keep um, going on in your activities. And uh, so we do often that in, in workshops or we can do that in, in sessions with clients. And, uh, you know, I often use uh, imposter as a word for myself. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, often the trainees in my workshops are a little shocked at first or they laugh but with a bit of a embarrassment at first. And, you know, it's probably because um, it's not an easy thing to do, you know. And, and if you think that it's not a, an easy thing to do, well, that's probably because you're you're buying a bit into that. You know, mm. you're actually a little few. With if that. they find
2: out bad things will happen that they exactly. think that maybe they'll agree with me that I'm really incompetent and they'll exactly. me out of doing this workshop or something. Exactly. Like that. <laughs> now that I put
0: these words on myself. The secret's out. Cannot, exactly. Exactly. But yeah. you know, it's, um, it's actually a kind of a very, very common thought in, uh, in academic work. Um, this idea that um, uh, somebody's uh, more qualified than you for talking about this topic. And you know, in fact, it's probably because it's true. I mean, in a way, we are always uh, kind of impostors because you can always find somebody who would be more qualified than you, somebody who should be, should be there instead. And I think that's, that's what is really interesting about it. Again, these um, definition that you had about yourself are uh, positive or negative. They're almost always um, at least a little bit true. So the problem is that if you start believing in it very rigidly, they will um, very very likely uh, slow you down, prevent you from doing things that matter to you. So in in terms of a uh, of practice outside the session, uh, well, I might not necessarily recommend that uh, a client would go with a tag on a shirt uh, at work, but they might have, um, let's say, uh, a piece of paper, you know, in which they they would write this uh, this thought and keep it, keeping it with them in the in a pocket, you know, and, uh, and sometimes just checking in and saying, yes, that thought is still, it's still there. And, uh, I was actually able to do a lot of things that in a way were contradicting that, that definition of myself. So it's not necessarily in this case, a, a transcendental, um, experience, but still you can see that you have an increase of flexibility with, um, mm, with I like that. It
2: <laughs> seems like there's a lot you could do with sort of the idea of carrying, carrying them with you as you do other things. Yes, you care about.
0: Yes, absolutely. And as you can see, there's uh, that shows also the connection with other processes of act. Uh, there's a, a kind of uh, acceptance um, element in that, uh, the emotions that will come with uh, putting a difficult words on my uh, on my shirts uh, I will uh, try to accept them I will diffuse from this from these words and uh, I will uh, engage in activities that that matter to to me so you you can always connect uh, these processes with uh, mm. uh, with uh, with the self as context
2: mm-hmm. yeah I like that a lot uh, I was Um, looking at youtube the other day this seems like an aside but hang with me um and there's someone i i don't remember exactly where she is maybe the uk or australia and she posted something on youtube called my act purse and it's very much that idea of carrying around in her purse um which is a very beautiful purse that was given to her by someone she cared about uh um some of these really negative self thoughts and things she doesn't like about herself. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beautiful about putting them in something that you care about and carrying them with you because, you know, it's almost like, it's completely changing from adversarial stance to something like there's something precious almost. Yeah. Inside, mm-hmm. inside, saying like these are just things I have, and how beautiful that I'm here. You know, there, there's something there's yeah. something mm-hmm. in that moment that just feels really kind of beautiful that I hadn't really experienced before. I saw this woman put this these sort of nasty yeah. thoughts in this beautiful purse she, she thought was wonderful. So I, that, I don't. That's know.
0: very nice. That's very nice. I, I think it's. Um, it's connected to, to to this idea that you know, like in the chessboard metaphor, uh, for example. It's a yes when you are taking a side in the in the game, you want to get rid of the let's say the, the black pieces, but at the same time you need the black pieces because if not, there's no game at all, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the of the game. They in fact your uh, bad thoughts, if you want to call them that way, are also your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you have um, um, difficult judgments about yourself. Uh, there is a good way that uh, a good chance that it's connected to something that matters to you too. You know, mm. uh, let's say for example, if you are always bothered with the thoughts "I am an impostor," uh, there's I think a good chance that it's because you really uh, care for uh, um, doing a good job. And um, uh, if you're a teacher, for example, you you really want to teach something useful for uh, to your students. And um, I think it's uh, why, in fact, even in in difficult thoughts, there is a message, an interesting message to To um, there's
2: detail. like a kernel of values inside there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, yeah. but it sounds like you're saying it doesn't mean that you have to be pushed around by what those thoughts tell you to do, or identified only as those thoughts, but that there's a kernel of something.
0: Yeah. That we care yeah. about. Yeah, and and, mm-hmm. and and that again, that that. Um, Distance that we try to take from these uh, from these thoughts is um, by no means a way of um, of getting rid of it, of looking uh, uh, away from it. It's really to uh, yeah to take them with a bit of a bit of, um, a bit of um, light and um, to consider how they can be useful. You know mm. this, idea, this idea that we uh, we uh, always look at what what works, what can be useful. Uh, with regard to our values is um, just um, in every process of act.
2: Mm-hmm. So so in other words, like uh, this idea of workability comes, to, c- comes back to these thoughts too. And so would you say that helping to get perspective on your own thoughts, feelings, experiences, uh, sort of distance from it, um, it can give you that sort of space to... Maybe choose some behaviors that care about you, that you care about, um, and that uh, you can you can sort of see what's workable. Like, what do I want to be about in this moment?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I would. What's I would, workable? Yeah,
2: you know, because I know sometimes I have thoughts like, uh, for example, if I did, if I if I know um, I've done like a really not great job at something that I really care about. I might have thoughts like, oh God, I'm so horrible. I can't believe I did that. I totally sucked. And there's a kernel of truth inside. Like I didn't do as well as I'd hoped. Um, And, but the workability piece might come in if I say like, okay, I really care about this workshop. There's something I need to learn from this scenario to do, to do something different next Mm -hmm. time. I don't have to believe that that means I'm always going to be a horrible person. um, Or that I'll never do better. Um,
0: I think you said that you said it perfectly, perfectly right there. It's, uh, after this uh, bad experience that you that you um, uh, describe, uh, if you start thinking, so I'm a really bad worker and I will never be able to do a good job, then you get fused with this definition. And that's not helpful because you have values. You have values of uh, doing a good job in whatever you're doing exactly, mm-hmm. but that matters to you. Um, but if you take that with a bit more distance, with that perspective and thinking, well, okay, I have these thoughts and it might be useful to... Uh, um, believe it a little bit, like I actually was not very good today, and what matters to me is to um, being um, uh, a bit better at this at this job, so you learn something from it that becomes useful to uh, to listen to that thought but if you're, if you are rigidly uh, fused with it then you, you, you're not going to move anymore in the direction of your values. You see the, you sure. see the difference. So oh, it's yeah. really yeah, hearing I, about if, the feedback, yeah. but it's not about, not about being rigidly uh, fused with right. that. Right, right. Yeah. And it's particularly important when we are talking about thoughts about the self uh, because, um, you know, they tend to uh, define us completely. And so it's particularly uh, overwhelming, uh, you know. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Yep. Very good. <clears throat> well, dang, I think we've covered a lot of good ground. Um, I guess, uh, do you have any sense, uh, Matthew, for empirical support for um, for this process? Is this something that can even be, uh, you know, experimented upon? And if so, it'd be fun for you to describe a few of those um you know, even just one of those studies, just to get a sense for how this can be studied and what, you know, what type of outcome has has been borne out, if there's been any.
0: Well, that's a good question. Um, actually, surface context is probably the process for which we, we really like um, component studies. I mean, by component studies, studies in which we would uh, isolate only this process and we would uh, um evaluate how useful it is. Uh, like clinically, so, you mean. Clinically, yeah. yeah. You know, you could you could conduct even um short lab studies like it's been done with mindfulness and uh, and see what happens. You just construct a little uh, a little study and you see what happens even with people who don't suffer from a specific clinical disorder. But even more as you say in a, even in a clinical intervention so we're really lacking uh, data uh, about that and I, i'm but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure we will very soon have our, have more um have more um information about that and and i think it's it's really important um maybe a reason why it's the case is i think Uh, until recently, it was still a little bit difficult to identify exactly the processes that were involved. Um, I think we start to see a bit more clearly that perspective taking is really an important aspect, that um, targeting this sense of continuity of the self, this uh, fusion with conceptualized self is important. And um, I think as we start to understand a bit more what are the targets of this process, uh, we'll probably um, come up with um, with studies that will um, tell us, uh, tell us um, how it works more specifically and how it's connected to other processes. But there's still some um, interesting studies in particular in perspective taking that have been conducted in, uh, in relational frame theory. Um, they inform us at least a little bit about how how this process works, even if it's not um, directly related to it. You know, there have been studies conducted on, uh, we were mentioning it earlier on uh, this uh, diactic relational framing. So that's the the jargony term used in a uh, relational frame theory for talking about perspective taking. And we start to uh, know better that this uh, ability to change perspective uh, grows with uh, uh, verbal skills and uh, that they are connected to this ability to... Um, Attribute mental states to others—that uh, theory of mind, whatever that I was mentioning at the beginning of our of our talk. So it's um, very um, theoretical still at that point, but um, as we are as we are um, connecting new research and and notably in connection with self compassion too, you know this uh, this ability to uh, take a perspective on yourself that is uh, compassionate, that is uh, more acceptance um i think we'll come up with some uh, with some better understanding of this process
1: mm mm
2: mm-hmm. so so as of yet there's been a few sort of geeky studies out there <laughs> looking at this process that really boiled down in terms of its smallest uh well not not necessarily boiled down into its smallest parts but in terms of the sort of basic theory of of how this language process may work of what's inside perspective taking from an RFPT perspective there's some data there right but um we're still looking we're still looking for data to support yeah, in particular, clinical work, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 In
0: particular, looking at, at, at studies that will be uh, uh, more directly applicable to, to clinical work. Hmm.
2: Well, so while we're waiting for that data, um, what are what are some of the benefits? Like we've talked a lot about sort of the pitfalls, how people can do it. We're still looking for data. We have some sense it might be useful. It can be trained from some of these basic studies. What What is sort of engendering self as context allow clinically and mm-hmm. and maybe do you have a case example where you could kind of take sure. us through someone who sort of uh used this process in, in and sure. and found it useful and
0: yeah yeah well it's um i guess we we mentioned some of these uh, benefits as we were describing the, the the process by itself but if i if I were to summarize that, I would say there are at least three main probably three main benefits of working with self as context and I would say that the first um first main benefit would be this uh, um diffusion from conceptualized self the fact that you um Alleviate barriers to, to action. That you take your definition of yourself a bit more uh, uh, lightly, and then you become more able to engage in things that matter to you. So that would probably be the, the one of the most important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. benefit. The second benefit, as I mentioned it, as I mentioned uh, uh, too, is the is the, um, threatening. Um, I mean, um, strengthening the um, this sense of continuity of the self. Uh, in particular, in certain clinical disorders, I mentioned borderline personality disorders but it 's true of uh, uh in psychosis and, and even in uh, in even for for um, less uh, dramatic um, um, difficulties but i mean in our everyday life, we often experience with this um change in your life and how it can be uh quite disturbing you know uh, something happened in your life so for example you uh you become a parent as we were saying earlier or or you you get married or you get a new job and suddenly you just have a hard time recognizing your yourself for a little while mm. so often it's very transient you know just a few days just so you have the time to uh adapt to this uh new definition of yourself but it can be sometimes uh more distressing. So working on self-as-context will help you um, um, get to that sense of continuity, this sense of of oneness of of the sense that no matter what's happening, um, you you uh, not that you remain the same, but what constitutes really the foundation of yourself. That part uh, of you that's
2: always exactly been able that, to observe is still exactly. observing. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's an important aspect of the surface context for sure. And um I would say maybe the third main aspect of probably is the this more general um um ability to, to change perspective. We could say almost that this first two um um uh, benefits that I mentioned, diffusion with surface self-concept, con- con- the conceptualized self and diffusion and um, the sense of continuity of the self are kind of, uh, of produced by, by flexibility in perspective-taking. The more I'm able to change perspective, to take distance, and the more I can be diffused from, from uh, um, that definition of myself and to perceive that, as we were saying, I've been there all along, no matter what happened to, to me. Mm-hmm. So I would, yeah, I would probably... Um, Summarize that. There, there might be some other aspects, but I would probably mention these three uh, main aspects of uh, benefits, uh, aspects. And you know, you were uh, asking me about a um, maybe a kind of clinical case. Hey, hang um, on!
2: Before we go there, uh, if we have mm-hmm. time, I just wanted to, um, to to ask if there's any th- those things you mentioned seem pretty person-focused, specific, like one, one person focused self-focused. But it, but is there like a social benefit? In here, like, would you argue that that maybe this ability to take perspective on our own experiences could translate mm-hmm. into being able to take other people's yeah. perspective on their own experiences or what's happening for them?
0: I could talk about that in. Um,
2: I know that's opening a whole other can of worms. No, but. no, not necessarily.
0: <laughs> not necessarily. I think we could talk about that when um, I think you wanted to ask me about how we can use the process. The clinician can actually use the process. On themselves. There's a question like that, and I think I developed a bit of that. I could be. Yeah, per, when you, you said perhaps discuss the importance of clinicians working from a place of safe as context and other context initiation. So maybe um, if I develop a little bit this um, case, not very long, okay. if you want to follow up with me by saying, and what about the, um, the therapies? Uh, okay. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah, yeah. And cool. Then, and, and then I think, uh, and, and if I don't cover enough of what you were saying, then it's easy to follow up with that too. Awesome. Is that correct? Okay. So let me just see some notes about this, um, this case. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So I, I I suggest I go on with just talking about cases. That's fine? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So I think the most interesting cases probably I've had or, or seen using self as context were cases of personality disorders, actually. Uh, really, I think it's in these kinds of difficulties that you see uh, much fusion with conceptualized self. And mm. it's, yeah, it is difficult to catch sometimes because, you know, it often looks uh, coherent. Uh, what I mean is that the story we tell about our, ourselves, you know, is it's almost uh, always logical, coherent. So something happened to you and um, it makes sense that you are the way you are or you've always been uh, like that. You always had that. I'm mess, broken, uh, exactly. something like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because this
2: thing happened to me. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You see that with, with with folks who've had a traumatic experience often.
0: Yeah. You and know, difficulty... I'm not, no longer
2: the same because of this trauma that happened. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. 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 And, the dif- and the difficulty is that um, as you're trying to uh, to move in new directions, I'm actually threaten even this uh a difficult uh, definition of yourself, you know. Uh, sometimes after years and years of defining yourself as broken, it might actually be even frightening to to think of yourself as uh, being able to do to do certain things, you know, new things. Mm. It's uh, all coherence is built around this this definition that can be uh, difficult to um, to deal with. So yeah, in general, all these signs of fragility uh, linked to the concept yourself. Are, are very present in in personality uh, disorders. And um, I couldn't mention, for example, um, yeah, I remember a case of a narcissistic personality. uh, and You know, in narcissistic um, personality, you can be challenged by your client a lot, you know. Uh, In fact, some formal exercises are often rejected or devaluated. And I remember a client, yeah, saying that, she didn't see the point of practicing mindfulness exercises, for example, and you know that's fine to have doubts about uh, about that, of course. But I thought that the function of these doubts um, was more to challenge uh, the therapist in this case than to wonder about the efficacy of the of the treatment. And um, I remember that that client would often often say. Um, that she didn't like the idea of reaching for help, that it was a sign of weakness mm. and uh, that she felt like she was in therapy just to see what people do in therapy, just by curiosity, kind of denying, you know, that, that she was reaching for help. Um, so of course there was not a, uh, they didn't make the, the exchange is uh, very, uh, very easy and the, and the sessions very, very useful for her as long as she was in that, in that, in that place. So we used uh, one of these uh, self as context exercises and um, a m- multiple role-play exercise, in fact, and that consists of um, choosing, picking randomly uh, some kind of arbitrary definitions of ourselves and to play a short interaction and um, exactly as if you were uh, like that, like that definition that you picked randomly. For example, uh, that client could play um, a depressed person asking for, uh, for help, therapy. And it was just an exercise, so she could see that as just a um, thought exercise at first. But what happened is that impersonating these multiple characters um, helped her see that reaching for help didn't necessarily change what she was, mm. or said in a way um, that she could do very many different things and that she was still there, you know, the person she was. Um, so, so in other words, yeah. she
2: had she experienced through role through through speaking as if she were that other person. Yeah. Uh, that that there was still a, a continuity of herself. There was still a sense of herself present as exactly. she took the role of someone else. Exactly. And, and were those extensive experiences? Like, did she talk about them for for any length of time? Like, really getting into the role, almost like you were acting.
0: Well, you know what was interesting is that what you, you could observe is that she gained flexibility uh, progressively vis-a-vis that, that image uh, of herself. As she was at the beginning, no, I'm, I'm not a weak person. I'm not in therapy because I really need it. Um, it became, she actually started to show behaviors uh, that made sense in terms of reaching for help. And at first, she wouldn't necessarily uh, call it that way. But functionally, that was, uh, that was uh, uh, more clear in the exchanges that we had with her. Interesting. So that that was particularly interesting. In fact, what we could say um, in in simple terms is that by experiencing um, uh, behaviors or just acting in a way that was not originally consistent with the way she was defining herself, she realized that she could still have um, a sense of self that was stable and uh, she could experience that she could actually have more variability in what she was doing in her actions than she thought.
2: Ah, so more, more behaviors became, a po- more things she wanted to do became possible.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and, and what was useful is that in that case, um, well, she could experience oh, what a, a reinforcement, what satisfaction came from this, uh, from these new behaviors.
2: Mm, so what might, what might an example have been in the room that you could see? Like, um, was it more like, did she have any experiences of feeling Connected to you, or, or I'm just curious, you know, how you would notice that variability in the room, or that that sort of shift
0: in your yeah. perspective. Well, what was interesting is to see how she would lower her guard a little bit, and uh, how certain uh, um, certain uh, sentences that she would um, she would say uh, almost like a loop, you know, and that's often a, a sign of fusion when uh, clients tend to say things again and again, and you would see increasing that flexibility, that variability in things that you would say. Mm. Precisely, by experiencing mm-hmm. different kinds of roles, and you know the point was not to say, "Okay, so you see you can be also right it wasn't like uh, a teacher that it was no. yeah right okay no. right. in that in that sense it's very uh different uh, it's i guess it has in a in a way a bit the form of a, a traditional social skills training in which you you do role plays to just practice a specific skill in this case, it's not to practice a specific skill but just to experience that you can do a lot of different things, and you don't necessarily have to adopt one of these role in the end, but you just um, um, have this the experience of the this uh, uh, variability and it's very interesting for for clients who uh see themselves as uh you know through only almost only one definition you know I'm a strong mm-hmm. person or mm-hmm. uh, or I'm not weak for example and for sometimes for a while it's just the only definition that seems to uh, summarize themselves
2: mm. mm-hmm yeah. John, were you going
1: to say something? No, 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 <clears throat> no. Oh, okay. No, this is good. Um, I, I, uh, well, well, Jen, did you have a follow-up question before I uh, ask a question?
2: Um, no. Go ahead, ask your question. Okay.
1: So, so Matthew, this has been very good. Uh, I think it's very valuable. I have, I like to kind of uh, throw a save a hard question for the end, and um, and then, and Jen, I, I kind of want you to um, field this too with your experience but um we've we've kind of established so here goes, this is a hard question. So we've established that right now there isn't a, a great deal of empirical support for the process of self as context. and we um, we've also established that it's you know it's one of the more difficult processes to to kind of work with. Um, I have I'll even add. Uh, just for the sake of you know a tough question that I've even heard you know I think I heard someone at an ACBS conference kind of say once that you know ACT would do just fine if they dropped the self as context process altogether so I'm asking these questions this question out of sort of the spirit of inquiry and um, good science not not as a naysayer but you know why why not you know is is self as context kind of an important piece of the act model and is you know what would you say to someone who said no you know uh, you know we probably could do without this this process and jen once we've given matthew a chance to answer if you have additional stories or anecdotes that you could add that kind of would help us see uh other case studies where where your work on this process has actually led to important psychological movement on the on the part of the client. I'd I'd love to hear about that. Is that a fair question? Is that too hard?
2: No, I think
0: that's fine. No. No, yeah, yeah. I
2: think I it's think actually a, it's valid, yeah.
0: It's a great question, John. I think there's so much to say about that because the the just the simple fact that you asked this question I think says a lot about acts. I don't think there is a rigidity about the model, and indeed, I think that if we uh, come up with the conclusion that uh, this process doesn't add anything, then uh, you know it's an empirical question, and uh, we need to adapt. Uh, we know we often uh, um, we often present the um, act um, model through this uh, Exaflex with these six processes. There are always other ways of presenting the model, but that's the probably the most common um, currently. But um, we might add another processes or process or remove one, and it's an empirical question. So that, I think, is an important uh, thing to remember. Now to answer more concretely your question. Well, I think it depends how you define, how you understand surface context. If you think that surface context is um, transcendent experience when um, you're kind of detached or, you know, as I said, kind of uh, depersonalization experience, then you might wonder if it's really um, necessary to work on this uh, in in therapy, if it shouldn't be just uh, something for, um, for a meditation practice, intensive meditation practice. But I think, um, as I said today, um, if we define as context as primarily a process of perspective taking, flexibility in perspective taking, then it is very hard for me to imagine that it could be dropped in in the practice of ACT and actually in practice of psychotherapy in general. And I would say that even if we drop that process uh, we would still see clinicians use um, this process in therapy. Uh, Maybe they wouldn't be uh, exactly aware of it but they would use it still. But I think as research grows, we will see that certain techniques can be um, um, more useful than others. Maybe it can be uh, enhanced. Um, but I really think that we are actually just um, starting to scratch the surface of the, the use of perspective taking in, a, in in session. So again, I think it's an empirical question, but um, I uh, my bet is that it's actually going to uh, take more space in the model. And as we will develop um, pro- better measures of the, the process too. We we haven't mentioned that uh, so far. We talked about the, the empirical studies that can support this process, but we also lack uh, a good measure of this process, like a scale. You know, We have scales for other processes, but there's nothing right now that really um, allows us to measure surface context. So I think uh, my bet is that in the, the next maybe five years, I think uh, we'll have some... Uh, some very interesting new um, data and uh, maybe manuals, maybe targeting more particularly this process that will uh, um, make that, um, there will be no doubt that this process is uh, is very useful in therapy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely with everything, with everything Matt said, absolutely. Um, I think some of the inclination we have that, Maybe self-as context is helpful is that there have, we didn't talk about this last time with, uh, with Russ, but there's actually some data on diffusion being helpful. I mean, even before ACT came around, there were some of those, those Titchener studies that by repeating a word, it loses meaning. We get yeah. a sense that words aren't literal and they don't have to reflect reality. So, and, and, but also there've been some, some laboratory and component studies. Um, even one of our colleagues in Steve's lab did his dissertation, um, or did a, I think it was his Master's project that looked at a uh, diffusion um, processes, and, and that they showed um, that using diffusion techniques uh, produces good outcomes. So, that, so, so we know that there's diffusion is useful, and when such since diffusion and this sort of idea of fusion with conceptualized self is such a core part of of what we're moving, um, we're trying to uh, break down. Uh, in the self-as-context work, we have a sense that there's some data that suggests that that just working on fu- defusing from conceptualized self is useful unto itself. We, we can make a sort of uh, conceptual leap there, I think, given that there's some data. So I think that's, that's just one piece, but yeah, there's a lot more to be done, and we don't even have any measures, even self-report measures, in part because it's so hard to talk about, I think. Um, but then clinically speaking, I think... If you are looking at each of the processes, and and John, tell me if this has been your experience when you do some of this work, like when you have a really powerful acceptance moment or a really powerful moment where you sort of get a step back from your own thoughts, just maybe in terms of your own experience. For me, that's been very much the experience of seeing myself as more than just my experiences. Like in order for acceptance to happen... I, I get some distance from my from my feelings. I get some distance that I am not just that feeling. Otherwise I'm consumed by it. Or it, it it's damaging to me, it's harmful, it's hurtful. But if I get some distance from it, I'm already taking that sort of self as context perspective in a small way just to get to acceptance. Same is true with diffusion. Like in order for me to even we talked about this with Russ, like having that piece of paper or your hands in front of your face with those words, like just that action of, of taking that step back and moving the hands down, that's a self as context move. That's that's noticing that there are experiences and just the act of noticing, I would argue is is self as context in some small way. Just maybe there haven't been enough experiences of that in our lives that we can thread together to have that sense of that consistent observer. But I would argue it's present in almost all, in all of the processes in the model, just sure. from a clinical perspective. And whether there's theory that can go, can, that can uh, unpack that, it seems like RFT has a decent take on that. That's pretty complicated to get into now, but uh, but people are working on that. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it won't be that critical and maybe it'll be a process that gets dumped at some point, but it seems like at least experientially it happens in a lot of the other processes, you know, just mindful present moment awareness, uh, shifting attention from my experiences to the world around me. There's still that consistent sense of observing, uh, same with values. Uh, I would argue values and we talk, um, we'll talk about this later with values that, being connected to our environment is where we get reinforcement from doing the things we care about um, or one of the ways we get reinforcement for doing the things we care about. Um, so I would, I would argue that in order for us to see clearly our values and to take steps in those directions, we have to have a little bit of self as context to, to sort of freely choose those things and to stay connected with them and to commit to doing them over time. So, so I think experientially it's there. It's there. Whether or not the data will bear that up, I don't know, but...
1: Yeah, I'll, if it's okay, I'll flip to the other side and kind of argue based on my experience. Uh, most of my work so far has been done with anxiety disorders and OCD specifically, but but I've also done a lot of work with trichotillomania or um, or with uh, you know other types of anxiety. And it, I think at least with OCD, um, it's and I think this is true with pretty much most of the DSM disorders. It's so easy for clients to become uh, so fused with their thoughts and feelings that um, they just become kind of meat robots reacting to the programming that their mind generates. And this, this, you know, if the mind's functioning well and firing well, that, that can be not such a problem. But when when the mind's telling people to do some somewhat dangerous or scary things, or when the mind... Betrays them in some way and tells them things that are actually sort of verifiably false or dangerous. Um, being fused with the mind and reactive to it can lead can lead people into some very dangerous and dark places where they destroy many of the things that they love just by being reactionary. And so mm-hmm. I've seen, you know. So we've talked about diffusion, which is saying I am I am not my thoughts and I'm not my feelings, but. The question is, how do you build up the muscle of of becoming diffused? And yeah. I've seen self as context as being the the exercise that you do, the observing. It's like lifting the weights. It's the exercise that you perform that builds space between you, your transcendent self or your enlightened self, and those thoughts and feelings that the mind generates. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of... Uh, from from what I've seen, self as context is is kind of the conceptualization of what you're trying to get at. And then mindfulness kind of comes in as the practice that then helps create that space um, between you and the thoughts and feelings. And some of the thoughts and feelings you're going to want to embrace and follow. And some of them you're going to want to stay as far away from as you can. But um, for me, undeniably, the process of observing and of awareness is the first step towards building the muscle that allows for diffusion. Does that I think make any it's
0: sense? A, yeah, absolutely. I I think – and you know what? No wonder why this um, concept of self context is uh, very um, close to um, other concept that we can find in other mindfulness traditions. Um I think you 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 absolutely make a great point about how to uh, as you say build this muscle. I would uh, I would argue that um there's uh, there's other ways also to to build that and that might be um maybe less contemplative but uh a bit more um uh active in a way. Um I would say for example just you know uh cultivating uh, variability in our everyday life. Um just um, noticing when you're doing the same thing again and again or when um, you're not doing something just because of the way you are. As I said, you know, I don't like going out. I don't like doing to, going to uh, classical uh, music concerts or uh, opera is not for me, et cetera, et cetera. Well, sometimes it can be interesting to just try, you know, to just uh, give it a shot. And the point is not to th- say then I will like it. But just to make the experience and to notice that, well, actually, uh, you were able to do that thing that doesn't um, match the definition of yourself. And uh, that's fine. You're still there. And um, you just build a little bit more flexibility about yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I like that. And I think even just some of the perspective-taking exercises you mentioned yeah. you mm-hmm. know, are, are little ways that it can be done. But I agree, mindfulness is a very one formal way and, and certainly one that's very much in the ACT model. But there's also these other little ways. I like the, the things you're talking about of um, breaking patterns, you know, like looking mm-hmm. at, you know, and just observing that process. Like yeah. there's yeah. different things you can do. It can be really helpful. Or just even embracing other roles you might have and, and yeah. recognizing you can you can behave in those ways. Not in a false way that you, you're going to, you know, put on this persona, fake smile and go do something you don't care about. But But just that there's variability possible in the kinds of roles that we Absolutely, have yeah. so that you're not just that one role Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: well great well this has been really um helpful so far so i i guess i want to ask jen if she has any final questions or or comments and then i want to give matthew a chance to kind of wrap this up for us um so jen any final questions or things you want to pursue
2: um i think covered pretty much everything we wanted to talk about um the one thing we didn't get to Matt was just the 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 clinician and maybe talking about mm-hmm. empathy and perspective taking a little bit but I don't know if you we wanna need to okay. go into that right now I mean it we can maybe have you, another uh, podcast and get into yeah, some could, of those topics too I guess
0: it's something that you could probably address in um if you do a podcast on the um, therapeutic relation uh, relationship yeah it's, if you if you keep that in mind, I think it's sure yeah could even give you some one of, of the many ways that, that these
2: processes bleed into each other and yeah
0: because you know, it's actually true the whole model. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually true of all the processes in exactly yeah so. that would yep. be, be a good way yep. um, yeah
2: yeah otherwise i think we covered covered a lot of great stuff that i hope
1: mm-hmm. will be useful yeah. for our listeners so yeah, yeah. excellent well um well this has been a really important discussion and I really appreciate Matthew your willingness to come on and uh and to cover it for us. It's a, it's a tough one to tackle, but I think you did a great job.
0: It was really a, a pleasure. I think it's um you know one of these uh, topics in the act that uh, always uh, come again and again and uh, I um I think it's uh it's really a very very interesting uh, very interesting topic. Um, I don't know if in the end that will be only uh, an intellectual um, topic for uh, geeks, you know, but when you were asking if uh, it's a process that could disappear from the model, I'm thinking well, we might keep it just for talking for hours and hours because it's really so interesting you know mm-hmm. um, but I think again if I were to conclude this um, this um, talk about um, self-ass context for now at least I would say that well, we still have uh, some good research to do, for sure. We need a, a good measure also. And um, as you said um, at the beginning of our conversation, um, it's true that this process has been described as a very complex process. And uh, I think uh, we're starting to find some better ways to teach it to clinicians. Um, I could uh, mention some chapters of, of books Um probably in the uh, Running Act, Act Made Simple. And then the new edition of the Act book by by Steve Hayes, Kirk Sorzell and Kelly Wilson. There's really a, a nice chapter on, on the surface context, too. Uh, you'll find also workshops online on the ACBS website, sometimes just the PowerPoints and some videos, too. And uh, I think um, we uh, are... Finding better ways to, to teach this process, and uh, as clinicians will get that process better, uh, they will also give us some feedback about how useful it is in a, in therapy. And uh, I'm pretty sure um, we will soon um, um, we will soon know better and be able to enhance the techniques that we that we have for this process.
1: So, a challenge to future researchers everywhere.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. You know, it, some uh, some researchers. I, I
0: think Carmen Luciano I, that I saw in a, in a talk last year at the work on in Reno said that the self is everywhere in the the exaflex model. That's actually uh, at the center of the the exaflex. She would uh, talk about it uh, better than I, than I would, but it's uh, I think an interesting point of view that uh, in the end it's all about the all about the self. So it's uh I think going to be a major a major topic of uh of research in the next years for sure. Mm-hmm. Well
2: just as you mentioned that self as context is an open is a door that opens for folks I think uh our discussion on this topic is hopefully just an open door into into more more ta- more discussions that that will stem from from this process and, uh the way we talk about RFT and the therapeutic yep. relationship, it sounds like it also, even our discussion about it, is also an open door. So, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Well, thanks again, uh, Jen, for joining us. At all, as always, you're the, you're the perfect co-host.
2: As, as you are. You have a lot of experience doing this stuff, and I'm glad to, to be doing this with you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And, and Matthew, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to lots of good things from you.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for your invitation. That was uh, really a great pleasure. And I'm sure you're going to have uh, other uh, uh, other people talking about our processes. And that will be very interesting. And I think it's a great, um, a great initiative to, to talk um, in this very open way about our model. And uh, I'm glad that we'll uh, send that out there and that people will uh, hear about the, this model uh, even more.
1: Excellent. Well, yeah. uh, I'll refer our listeners to our website which is contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. And that's where they can get the latest news and information and podcast streams. Uh, We also hope that at a very soon future date, this podcast will be available through iTunes. Um, So we look forward to that as well. But please send us your email, send us your comments. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Give us feedback. Follow us on Facebook. Yeah, yep. yeah. Very good. Act in Context on Facebook. And um, we'll look forward to another episode again. So thank, thanks to all of you. The Act in Context Podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory.